Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. This Justice Update is being produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. And I've given it the awful punning name of Aussie Rules, with many apologies to my Australian cousins who took me years ago to a classic Australian Rules football match. My cousin was a professional commentator and she was explaining what's actually happening in front of me while I was just focused completely on these muscly men and their very tight shorts. But today's podcast isn't about football, it's about the big news in Australia this month, war crimes. Yeah, so let's move away from Janet's tight shorts and move into some other less benign muscly men, the Australian Special Forces. A recent investigation by the Australian Army itself, known as the Barriton Report, identified 23 incidents in which 39 people were killed and another two were subjected to cruel treatment by Australian Special Forces during the time they spent in Afghanistan. All of those victims were either civilian or people considered hors de combat, for instance, uh, prisoners of war, people not taking place in the hostilities at the moment. And to explain a bit more and especially to tell us what happened next, we are joined by Rowan Araf, Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. Hi, Rowan. Hello, thank you for having me. Hi, Rowan. Good to see you after uh, a year when we last met at uh, the Assembly of States parties a year ago. I'm just going to warn listeners in case it matters. My dogs are just coming back from their uh, daily dog walk, so we might hear a bit of uh, barking in the background. So, Rowan, the first question we have is why this report? It was actually done by the Defence Forces themselves, by their Inspector General. Why did they, they look into this? So in early 2016, General Campbell, who was then the Chief of Army, at the moment he is the Chief of Defence, he called for the inquiry and requested that the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force inquire into these persistent rumours and allegations of breaches of the laws of armed conflict that were um, around and were as a result actually of a previous inquiry that he also himself commissioned that was uh, led by military sociologist Dr Samantha Cromfitz and her report has only recently been made public and at the time she told General Campbell of some of the things she was hearing from special forces personnel, really shocking acts that could amount to the commission of war crimes. So this is uh, what led General Campbell to then request a further, deeper, more detailed inquiry. And as a result, the Inspector General appointed a number of assistants to conduct this inquiry, including Justice Paul Brereton, who led it. Um, Hence, that's why it's popularly known as the Brereton Inquiry. Justice Brereton was appointed as a judicial officer under the relevant legislation that produces these types of inquiries. Um, And as a result, it it just means that he's got increased powers and independence. And I think it's important for your listeners to know that This wasn't a judicial inquiry or a court process. Um, A lot of people, I think, have been mistaken to believe that it is because it is run by somebody that has the title of a justice or a judge. Um, And so it is an administrative inquiry being run by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force. And Justice Brereton himself is a judge of the Supreme Court of New South Wales and, in fact, the Court of Appeal. And he's also a major general in the Army Reserve. And you talked a little bit about the uh, the detail uh, in the report from the sociologist. How much detail was there in the Barreton report? When I read through it, it's a lot of blacked out names. It's a lot of talking about command responsibility, yes, no, and who knew what where. But were there new details to come out there that weren't in the sociologist report? 
Um, I think it's interesting that you say that because although the incidents are heavily redacted, I think that there's enough material in the information in the Brereton report that would have horrified anybody. Um, In one particular incident, it's referred to as the worst incident in Australia's military history. And that's after a section in the report where, interestingly, the Brereton Inquiry goes into Australia's military history more broadly in terms of uh, allegations of war crimes uh, historically. And so I think, as you've outlined in the beginning, uh, the Brereton Inquiry looks at uh, unlawful killings, uh, which could amount to the war crime of murder, that they occurred not in the heat of battle, but in cases where victims were physically restrained or had been detained, and that the direct perpetrators were mainly at the patrol commander level um, as corporal or sergeant levels. Another interesting or really horrifying, actually, fact, um, the inquiry found that soldiers were engaged in an initiation practice called blooding, where patrol commanders forced younger soldiers to shoot a prisoner to achieve their first kill. So um, it is worthwhile adding here at this point that the Brereton Inquiry indicated that all of the witnesses that they'd spoken to in terms of um, uh, alleged perpetrators knew full well as elite soldiers the laws of armed conflict. There was another um, concerning part of uh, and pattern in terms of some of the allegations of crimes is this idea of throwdowns. The, in, the inquiry found that there was a practice uh, where a radio or a weapon would be planted next to the body of uh, a person that was killed so that reports can be passed up as uh, passed off as deceased combatants. Um, that's probably what we would say I think is the first step in in a system of cover-up that really went all the way through internally in, in the uh, in the ADF. And I think what's shocking to me and what's a really interesting part, and I would encourage your listeners to go read the introductory section where they look at, um, you know, mechanisms where it was supposed to be an oversight in terms of within the Australian Defence Force. There was a complete failure at this level in, in the entire oversight apparatus from the people who were conducting quick assessments to the people who were known as inquiry officers, even to legal officers within the ADF. Um, there was the idea that boilerplate language was being used in terms of the reporting and the assessments undertaken by these inquiry officers. Um, and I'll quote from the inquiry where they said that a kind of collective organisational blindness descended on the special forces rotations in Afghanistan, which meant that professional standards were compromised, excesses could be justified or overlooked in the pursuit of the overall mission. So I think, um, you know, this is a really interesting part and a very disappointing part, I think, um, in addition to some of the allegations of the commissions of crimes that we're reading is about the entire system of oversight was completely compromised in every respect. Um, and that's, that's, that's shameful, I would say. The reports obviously created huge waves in Australia, and I've just seen article after article, and you've been uh, all over the airwaves yourself for a while. What I've also seen is, uh, and was it before or was it afterwards that there's a prosecutor going to be, you know, appointed to to deal with this, and I, I, you say you're disappointed or you're shocked by it. Is everybody? I mean, I think so. I think the public reaction has been really strong in terms of condemnation, in terms of shock, um, and obviously in favour of accountability. What has also struck me, and I think that's really important, is this question um, about uh, um, what does it mean for the Australian public that our People in 
representing Australia were doing these kinds of acts overseas. But I think it's um, going to raise a lot of questions for Australians to grapple with. In the report, it says that they referred 23 incidents involving 19 individuals to the Australian Federal Police. But what they also say is that they've interviewed over 400 people, but every witness was given protection and immunity. So my kind of technical question is, could their testimony or the information actually be used in prosecutions? Yes, I think this is going to be a really interesting legal question and a challenge also for the investigators and the prosecutors. Um, Uh, And to start at the outset, from what I understand, having read the report, um, not in full yet, I'm still (laughs) making my way through it, but uh, the protections that have been provided to witnesses who spoke to the inquiry, um, the immunity protections cannot be used in prosecutions. However, um, it's important to observe this following point, that it doesn't preclude admission of evidence in court of information given to the inquiry by a witness against another person, including another person who is also an inquiry to the witness. What this means is, for example, it's possible that decisions will be made by a prosecuting authority on whether to prosecute person A or person B in a situation where a junior soldier was forced to kill one prisoner on direction of his superior. So it says that the evidence of such individuals is likely to be crucial in the prosecution of superiors. And in these circumstances, the inquiry did recommend that subordinates in this situation should be granted immunity. This is going to be, like I said, a really interesting legal question. Um, And what are the implications internationally on this point too, in terms of international customary law? So it's one to watch, definitely. But I should say that the inquiry said um, the reason why, I mean, it, they were empowered to undertake and provide these immunities according to the law, uh, the regulation provided by the conduct of these inquiries, but it was so that witnesses were able to speak freely and to be able to break down that code of silence and that culture of silence that it's quite endemic in special forces, as you can imagine. And who would be the prosecutor in these cases? Does it go to the Australian Federal Police? Is there a special unit? Mm. So it's interesting. The report does say, obviously, referrals to the Australian Federal Police. But I think what we should understand that to mean now is that with the announcement two weeks ago by the Australian government to establish this new office, this new body called the Office of the Special Investigator, that this is where this body is the body that will be investigating and referring um, to the prosecuting authority cases for prosecution. And the interesting thing, and I think this is a really welcome step and a positive development by the Australian government to set up such such a body, it's going to be really exciting, I think, in terms of international justice processes more broadly, but nonetheless, it's going to be a really overwhelming, probably, task for the Office of the Special Investigator, but not something I think that's insurmountable. I think that the people that will be staffed hopefully will be very capable. Australians have a very well-regarded reputation in terms of investigative skill abroad in international criminal tribunals and prosecutorial skills. So I think um, we can be confident that they will be able to bring cases for prosecution as well. The Office of the Special Investigator, I should add, is going to be acting under the powers of the Australian Federal Police Commissioner. Again, it will investigate 
start from scratch and prepare briefs for referrals to the prosecution authority, which is called the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecution. I think it's going to be interesting to see who will be the first special investigator. Um, We haven't had any kind of interest so far in terms of an analogy to who will be the next prosecutor of the ICC, but I think certainly the discussion will get to that stage in the next couple of weeks when we might see who will be appointed. At least we understand that there will be an announcement by the government about this new office in the next couple of weeks. So there's going to be some real interest, I think, among the legal profession of who is who is this office going to be led by. We just want to uh, widen the discussion a little here because Australians weren't alone in Afghanistan. There were many forces involved, including, for instance, the Dutch. And Stephanie, in her regular Reuters guise, asked the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutter at his weekly press conference whether this Aussie investigation could actually have implications for the Dutch war crimes investigations too. What did he say, Steph? Well, he said no, and I was kind of surprised at his outright dismissal. He mostly said that the Australian investigators uh, told them there was no indication of Dutch involvement, which kind of surprised me because obviously the Australian investigation was not looking into Dutch involvement. But he basically said, no, uh, there's no need. We have no indications of that. And he also said, remarkably, we really train soldiers very well to know what are war crimes and what aren't. So when I finally got around to reading the Barrington report, I was kind of amused to see that it sets out from the outset that all these people, as Rwan also said, knew that they were committing something that's potentially a war crime. So this excuse seems a bit strange from the Dutch government, but they don't see any reason to investigate it further for now. We're also thinking about the International Criminal Court, where Fatou Bensouda opened an investigation into Afghanistan. She's obviously talked about some foreign forces there, in particular the United States, because of CIA black sites, torture, and the lack of full investigation there, a big issue, of course. And so, Rowan, we were wondering, is there an indication that pressure from the ICC or a potential ICC investigation also spurred on the Australian investigation? I saw in the report that they had contact with the ICC and part of that contact, they said, was to demonstrate to the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC that the inquiry is rigorous and independent, which would then meet the requirements of complementarity, meaning that the ICC would not look into uh, Australian potential war crimes if Australia did its own investigation. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and it lit up the Twitter um, sphere earlier this week about what was the role of the ICC. And I think it was definitely a emo- motivator. I think um, it's one step in terms of uh, a positive complementarity from Australia, definitely. But, uh, you know, I query whether the inquiry itself as an administrative process is enough to fill the requirements of complementarity. I don't think it will. But further, uh, you know, in the report, the inquiry did say that one of the reasons they did recommend prosecution in civilian criminal courts is to avoid any potential problem with complementarity. So there is this streak throughout the report about the potential for the ICC to be involved at some stage in the future. And there is a section in the report where uh, there's a discussion, an extensive discussion on the law of armed conflict and the application of, um, and there's a detailed section in that part uh, which cites in full Article 17 on admissibility, of course, in the REM statute and explains the principle of complementarity. So it's quite clear, I think, in terms of the Afghanistan inquiry being very uh, aware of the remit, the broader remit of the ICC. But of course, we're going to need to see what 
happens at the office of the special investigator, how far up the chain of command they will investigate, uh, whether or not um, they will investigate comprehensively and fully. There's a lot of legal issues, I think, that will um, will rise to the fore and it's going to be really interesting to watch. And I think from the perspective of our organisation, as an organisation that would like to advocate on behalf of victims' rights and victims' perspective, we're really interested to ensure that this office has a focus, that it includes victims. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand that in Australia, victims can't join as civil parties to cases. So um, there are other ways of involving victims. And we think this is a really strong opportunity for us to push for greater involvement in the criminal justice process. I think uh, one of the recommendations in the inquiry was just this blanket um, recommendation for compensation. But I think it'd be really important for the government when they're implementing that recommendation, that they also look at broader reparations and other remedies that are available and should be available under international law to victims, such as uh, counselling, psychosocial support, those kinds of things. You know, some victims, it's possible that they just want to know the truth about what happened to them. They might want an apology, you know, simple things like that. And I think if you engage victims in the process, you're able to understand what they want and what they need and what is important to them. And just a little bit of speculation into the future, um, looking at uh, war crimes units. We've got a podcast coming up soon, which is focused specifically on the European war crimes units, which have been really busy on universal jurisdiction. I've just been listening to Philippe Sands talking about how amazing it is that Germany is leading the way, for example, on Syria, you know, senior people crimes. I mean, is this the start for Australia that, you know, that the the wedge is now open, that Australia is now going to get a war crimes unit and you're going to have to start to push yes. other other things? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have been pushing for a war crimes unit or an international crimes unit uh, since we were established, really. We noticed that it was a real missing piece of the puzzle in terms of Australia's ability to investigate and prosecute international crimes. And so we have said that this Office of the Special Investigator should remain permanent. Um, we don't want what happened in the past where Australia did set up this wonderful special investigation unit. It investigated the presence of alleged Nazi war criminals. Um, Unfortunately, it was disbanded in 1994 and all of that wonderful expertise ended up going to work in international criminal tribunals abroad. Um, So we don't want that to happen with with this office. We want that build up of that experience to remain and to become part of Australia's ability to join the global struggle to end impunity and be able to provide that access to justice to victims' communities where Australia becomes another avenue to provide that access and to prevent perpetrators from thinking that it's a you know, free-for-all, that they can come here um, and enjoy, enjoy impunity here. Thank you so much, Ruan, for a very late night uh, for you, uh, mid-afternoon mid, uh, for us. Thank you so much. It's been really, really great to talk to you both. And we'll catch up when there's more news about uh, Australian war crimes investigation into Afghanistan. Wonderful. Thanks. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Jana Anderson, And me, Stephanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com, where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at asymmetricalh. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.